Hello, and welcome to Friends Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. Our mission is to become a community of authentic Christ followers compelled to change the world. For more information about services in our community, go to friends.church eastvale. Thanks for listening. Last week, uh, my Corolla of 17 years died. Oh, that's the worst, right? And my mechanic said it was going to cost 16 times the value of the car to fix it. I'm, I'm like, really? 16 times? I could hear just Dave Ramsey in the back of my head, like, telling me, give me wisdom, you know. Um, and so we, unfortunately, had to scrap the car and go buy a new one. And, I mean, as cool as those commercials are where it shows that, like, super attractive couple come out of their beautiful home and they buy a new truck and there's a beautiful red bow on it, you know, those commercials. Like, buying a car in December is stressful, okay? It is not peaceful. It's not fun. And I was a Scrooge. I was totally grumpy. People were like, how are you feeling this week, Aaron? And I was like, I feel broke. I feel so broke. You know, I turned to Krista. I was like, hey, don't buy groceries this week. I'm, send back the presents, literally. I was like, no more. I'm done. Anyone feel that way, right? And, and I, we got into some conflict in that time. Uh, I read the top five conflicts that people get into uh, during the Christmas week, these are kind of fun. These aren't super serious. Uh, try to guess them with me as I read them off. Number one, cheating over a board game. All right? So, I mean, are there more cheaters here at 11 than at 9? I don't know. I wonder. But if you've never taken some money as a banker at Monopoly, you've got to try it one year. Okay, everybody? Like, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't cheat at games. just want you to know. Um, number four, when and how fast people wash up when you call them to dinner. Anyone ever get annoyed by that? Like, hey, time for dinner. No one moves. You know, all the moms are like, yes, I do. Uh, no one's helping mom, number two. Number three, mom's stressing over Christmas dinner. And number one, can we get a, like a little drum roll? Can we do this? Okay. Number one conflict this week is ownership of the remote control. <laughs> I mean, I know we have digital devices, but people still fight over the remote control. Uh, conflict during the holidays uh, seems to stick more and be a little louder. I remember uh, being nine years old and going to Christmas at my grandparents' house, and my grandfather and my uncle, his son, got into an argument. And I can't tell you what they said exactly, but I can feel in my body the awkwardness and the tension over an argument at the Christmas dinner table. Nothing will steal your Christmas peace like conflict this week, which is why I want to talk to us today about how to have a conflict-free Christmas. How to have a conflict-free Christmas. Our third Advent virtue of our series this Christmas is on peace. It's on peace. And it's what peace, uh, what the angels declared the Savior would bring. They said Jesus will bring peace. Remember that uh, famous uh, passage in Luke chapter 2? They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Or one of my favorite verses for Christmas is Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, speaking of Jesus, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Jesus promised to bring us peace. But I know that as you go through this week, that some of you are not anticipating peace, you're anticipating conflict. Maybe it's been a year of conflict in your family, your loved ones, spouses, relationships. We know it's been a year of conflict in our world. And so I just want to speak this morning to those people who anticipate that. And I want to address an emotional hurdle before we open up our passage. You might think to yourself, there's no way 
I could experience peace and have uh, uh, no conflict this week. Aaron, it's unrealistic to even think about that. That might be something you might be saying to yourself this morning. Maybe your family is dysfunctional. Or you might say, Aaron, my family is so blended. Everyone's going everywhere. And maybe you're 34 or 40 or 50. But when you go home, you're like 11 years old all over again. And it brings up all these wounds from your past. And let me just say that um, if that's you or any of us experiences those things, you, you know, conflict might not be inevitable or might be inevitable for you. You might have conflict this week. Um, it might happen. I can't guarantee that. But I want to read the words of Pastor Max Licato. He said this, conflict might be inevitable, but combat is optional. That's a good word. I mean, I, I, that's, that, that's a sermon right there, everybody. Let's just go home. Right? Con conflict might be inevitable, but combat might, is uh, optional. Uh, you do not have control over people's responses, actions, their attitudes. You don't know if they'll show up drunk or drink too much or not show up at all. Uh, you may not have a Thomas Kincaid family. That's okay. No family's perfect in this room. Uh, but in our passage today, God wants us to know that you might not have control of them, but you do have control of you. You do have control of you. And this morning, God speaks to the person who's in conflict. The passage is written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and he writes to two different groups who have a history of conflict in this passage. And the big idea I want to break down for us this morning is this, that Christ's peace must rule in your heart first before you can expect it to rule in others. Christ's peace, this is the big idea of our passage. There's one thing you remember. Here it is. Christ's peace must rule in your heart first before you can expect it to rule in others. And so turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 is our passage to figure out how to have a conflict-free Christmas. And as you're turning, let me give some background. Paul the Apostle writes this passage. He writes it to Christ Jews who had become Christian. They uh, embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And he writes to, to, to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who had believed in Jesus as well. And, then, and the Gentiles had come from kind of pagan backgrounds, if you will, like they had believed in false gods and all this crazy stuff. And they had conflict together. They could not get along. If you think you have conflict, you have no idea. These two groups fought endlessly all the time. Ephesians 2 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. In verses 1 through 11, or 1 through 10, Paul addresses how we have peace through Jesus um, uh, uh, with God and the conflict we have with God because of our sin. But in verses 11 through 18, he talks about how we have peace with other people through what, his death on the cross as well. And this is a doozy of the passage, or of a passage. Uh, you might hear words um, in it when I read it that kind of just go over your head. That's okay. Um, it, they go over my head too when I read it. It's a very dense passage. Paul is not succinct in it at all. It is very nuanced in his explanation. That's okay as well. We'll break it down idea for idea. But let me read the passage and then I will pray and ask God to help us understand it. Verse 11. Therefore, remember. Pay attention to the rememberers in this passage. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the, in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace 
who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far and peace to those who were near. For through Jesus, we have access to the Father. We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Pray with me. Lord, this morning on the third week of celebrating the Christmas season, we come and our hearts desire peace and shalom, Lord. I want to pray for anybody here this morning who comes in and their hearts aren't filled with shalom or peace. We ask God in the time together that you would just calm us down, not just to experience peace inside, but God, ultimately peace with you and with those around us. God, thank you for this week. Thank you for being our peace. We pray for all the conflicts in our world. We ask that you would bring peace to the world, Lord, and that people would come to a realization that without you, there is no lasting peace. Um, Help us understand this passage, God. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for bringing us together and for the chance to be challenged by this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. The word peace is used four times in this passage, but it's used 400 times in the entire Bible. And if you go to Israel, they will greet you by saying the word shalom. They'll say shalom. And that word means peace. But the word peace and shalom in the Bible is so much more important than just a greeting. It really means completeness. Uh, it, it means at its core that, that your life goes the way God wants it to go, that, it's, that it goes the way God designed it to go. To say that your relationships have peace means that your relationships go the way that God intended them to go. Now think about how awesome that would be for everyone's relationships this week to go the way they're supposed to go. Now, I don't know all of your network of friendships and relationships, but how cool would it be to just go, man, everything, everyone's getting along, it's all fine and dandy, everyone's in harmony and in unity. That's what shalom is. That's what peace is, harmony and unity between us and God, ourselves, and other people. Now think about the people in your life and this week, and who in your life you might not have shalom with. Who in your life might you not have peace with? It's those people that I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we're working through this passage. See, point number one today is this, that lasting peace is unattainable apart from Jesus. Lasting peace is unattainable apart from Christ. Paul uses the word remember two times in our passage, verse 11 and verse 12. The first time he uses it, he he, he says to the two groups, the the Jews and the non-Jews, to remember that they had tried everything to have peace apart from Jesus and it did not work out. It's difficult for us to grasp that Jesus could only bring, uh, could, uh, that Jesus is the only one to bring us peace and, and nothing else. And part of that reason is because we've been brought up in a secular humanistic world. And secular humanism is this belief that we can do things apart from God. And we might think that we can bring peace to our world and peace in our relationships apart from Christ. But it's only him, his power, his authority, his love, his mercy that can really change the human heart to a place where we can actually experience shalom and peace. A quick study of human history will tell you that every uh, attempt to bring peace is only temporary 
and only just a Band-Aid. And we can look at many examples. But one that I found that was kind of humorous was this past week, I read a story of a, a group of people from 1986. Man, I was six years old. Maybe you remember this. I don't know. But they are from an organization called Pro-Peace. And they plan to march in protest to nuclear war from Los Angeles all the way to D.C. Can you imagine walking from L.A. to D.C.? And their whole hope was to bring about nuclear disarmament. But instead of making it to D.C., they self-destructed in Barstow, okay? I mean, not the place you want to just, you know, have a bad moment. But they did. Uh, they got into a, a fight in Barstow. Half the marchers went back to Los Angeles. Those remaining were polarized about who the true uh, protesters were and those who were the fake ones because some were in cars driving along the road instead of walking alongside of it. They got an argument about their dress code. And so they decided to hold a vote. And then they got an argument about who could vote or not. And then they let children vote. And then they decided the vote wasn't valid. This is a true story. You can literally Wikipedia this thing. And then a bunch of people went home after that. And those who went all the way to D.C. didn't speak to one another. Now, they didn't bring peace to the world. And they didn't even have peace among themselves. And the reason why is because, you know, anything we do, it might be in good intention, but without Jesus, it doesn't have the power to actually touch the heart and the soul. We falsely hope in our personal lives that time can heal and bring peace, don't we? Maybe we say, oh, I haven't seen this relative or this person for a year, and now you're going to see them at Christmas time. And we think maybe it'll be different, we hope. Unfortunately, time doesn't heal wounds. It just hides them for a season. And then we get around them again, and it digs it all back up. We turn to government, and we think government programs will help, and maybe there's some good there, but a government of the people, by the people, for the people, is still without peace if Jesus isn't in the people and their heart. And I, I know this personally from just being your pastor, and in a lot of ways, this is less of me preaching today and just speaking from my heart as a pastor, that I talk to you on the phone and text messages, at the front door, in the parking lot, in here after service, that many of you have had ongoing difficult relationships with people. I know how draining it is to constantly have the push and pull of the same issues with the same people over and over again. It's just, it just wears on you. And for people in the first century, they, they believed that they, they, they had no hope that the Jews and Gentiles were ever going to get along. In fact, in verse 11, Paul says that their relationship had gotten pretty petty. He says this, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. They, were, they, they had retorted, resorted to name-calling by those who call themselves the circumcision. Their relationship had gotten petty, name-calling to each other. And by the way, adults do it more than kids, right? It had become childish. It had gotten even more childish, uh, as we kind of read about the text in, in a moment. But have you ever seen kids argue over what side's theirs, you know, like in a room or a car? Maybe you did it growing up. You know, they, they usually put a blanket in the car or maybe some toys in the room and they say, this is my side. And they, they turn to grandma or mom and they say, you know, like, the, the, get your toys off my side. Get, get them away. Like, stop touching my side. You, we've all seen that before, right? Well, well the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, had literally drawn sides. Literally. There was a wall that separated them from each other in the grand temple where there was worship in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And on that wall was an inscription in Latin and Greek that forbade uh, the Gentiles from going into worship with the Jews. It said this in, uh, on the wall. They found this uh, 
this archaeological find in 1871. It was called, it was an inscription, and it was called the Thanatos inscriptions because uh, they talked about death. It says this, no foreigner, no Gentile, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Those are pretty intense words to have on the outside of a, of a worship center, right? I mean, yeah, really intense words. Now, I don't think we have words like this hanging anywhere today, but we all do childish things, don't we, to create more conflict with people? We all do childish things when we're in conflict. Oftentimes, they create more anxiety, more conflict, less peace. And I was reflecting on my own like, journey with conflict and thinking, okay, what do I do that's childish? And I came up with a little list. Maybe you can relate to what I came up with. Here it is. Instead of looking at the problem I solve, uh, uh, problem to solve, I judge the person. Instead of looking at their behavior, I judge their character. Instead of resolving by taking ownership, I blame. Instead of dealing with facts, I speculate on motives. Man, that one is so hard. Instead of coming to a mutual understanding, I would rather focus on winning than losing. I wonder if any of those are similar to your strategies sometimes. Or maybe I'm, I'm the only one in the room. Yeah, you're the only one, Aaron. Do these things actually help create peace in our lives? No. They create more conflict and usually more anxiety between us and other people. Have you ever thought to yourself, they're the problem? Like, that's, it's all them. Maybe 100% it's all them. Maybe a spouse or a friend or a distant relative. You said, man, if they change, if they change, then everything will go good. You know, if like, they become different, then, then we can be fine. I think we've all said that in our own hearts before. But the problem is, you can only change you, right? The problem is only you can change you. And if you, you, you change, and you mature, and I mature, then possibly they might change, and the relationship might change and mature as well. Remember, the big idea this morning is that for Christ, peace has to rule in our heart first before we can expect it to rule in their hearts. It would seem like the Gentiles and the Jews were never going to get along, but then something did change. We read about it in verse 13. Look down there with me. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For he, that's Jesus himself, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. It was Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, Thank God for the but nows in the Bible. You know, he says, But now in Christ... You who are far have been brought near. Picture with me those same inscriptions that would hung, hang on the, the temple and that would keep the, the Gentiles from worship. Picture those hanging. And now picture an image, uh, image them in your mind uh, on the ground in rubble. And Jews and Gentiles walk over them together and they shake hands and they hug and they worship Jesus. That's a picture of shalom. And what is it that changed that for that to happen? It was verse 13. They were brought near by the blood of Jesus. They were far from each other, they were distant, they were separate, but then the cross brought them together. Think of the horizontal beam on the cross. They were far, but the blood of Jesus brought them near together to have relationship. The language in the Greek is intense. He himself, Jesus himself. It wasn't any, any politics, it wasn't any social change. It was Jesus Christ working in their hearts through his sacrifice on the cross that made them drop everything and say, okay, we can actually get along here. 
You see, bloodshed is usually the tragic outcome of our worst kind of conflicts, right, between enemies. But this time, when Jesus came, the innocent lamb of God shed his own blood to bring peace between Gentile and Jew, and Jesus has shed his blood for whatever conflicts you have with anybody else as well. It isn't politics, it isn't programs, it's the blood of Jesus that can win people over to, um, to have peace together. Did you know that 50% of marriages end in divorce? I hate that statistic. That I hate, I, I mean, when I read it, I'm like, I don't even want to say it because I hate giving it any voice. 78% of second marriages end in divorce. I hate that statistic. Had a gentleman after the first service walk up to me and whisper with tears in his eyes. He says, I'm on my second marriage and it, it's right there, Pastor. Pray for me. But I love this, I love this next stat. What, less than 1% of couples who pray together regularly end their marriages. Less than 1% of couples that pray actually daily together end their marriages. Now think about the power of that. That two people looking to Jesus can have peace together. It's not just because they have good chemistry. Don't, don't believe that lie. It's not because they have a, a big bank account. Don't believe that lie. It is because of Jesus that they're able to get together. And if it can happen in a marriage, it can happen in our own lives as well. But I know that as we're talking about this, in your heart, you may have a pocket of disbelief. And that pocket of disbelief might say, there's no way the other person is going to surrender to Jesus because it requires two people to give in to Christ. There's no way that person is going to give in to Jesus. But brothers and sisters, doing the impossible is what our God does best, right? Can I say that again? Doing the impossible is what our God does best? I mean, God became a baby this week. That's pretty impossible, I don't know what kind of conflicts you have, but doing the impossible is what our God does best. And in 1914 on Christmas Day, the impossible happened when the British, when British and German soldiers fighting in the trenches of World War called for a Christmas truce. Have you heard this story before? It's one of the most remarkable things. And the pictures from it are amazing. This is a picture of German soldiers and British soldiers in World War I on Christmas Day in 1914, not fighting and shooting each other but having fellowship. Think of this. In the midst of a bloody war, proud, hardened men left their trenches and they went out and they played soccer together and they fellowshiped and then they sang carols to Jesus and took communion to Jesus. Can you imagine this? In 1914 on Christmas Day, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, was greater than World War. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? you got to Google that and look at more pictures. It's incredible. The stories, I could have done a whole talk just on that moment right there. Both sides talked about this moment for days. Generals wrote one another, are we going to have the peace true, uh, true day? Are we going to give it up for a day? No one knew if it was going to happen or not. But it only happened because one brave soldier, a soldier on the British side, bravely lifted his head out of the bunker on Christmas morning. And no one shot back at him. And it was only when he op stood up like that did all the other men stand up. And they made their way to the bloodshed field for fellowship. Blood has been shed for your conflicts and my conflicts. It wasn't my blood or your blood. It was Jesus' blood. And I wonder if this Christmas, Jesus might be calling one of us, maybe you, 
to be like that brave soldier that just sticks their head out of the bunker and says, hey, on Christmas Day, in the name of Jesus, can we shake hands and have fellowship today? Could that be you? That brave soldier to do that? Remember, Christ's peace must rule in your hearts first before you can expect it to rule in others. I know it's scary to be the first one. I can't imagine what that, what that soldier must have been thinking. What am I doing? What am I doing? You know, he must have really wanted a Christmas. I know it's scary to be the first one to kind of stand up, right? We need courage to not have conflict at Christmas time. And so Paul gives us some advice on how to have courage. He says this in verse 12. Remember, there's a second remember, right? Everyone said pay attention to the remember, second remember. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in, in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. What is he saying right here? Well, verse 11, we're, to, we're commanded to remember that we tried to have peace without Jesus. Now, verse 12, we're told to and commanded to remember what life was like without Christ in our own personal lives. Um, and so he has this list of things to remember. He says, at one time, you didn't have Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't know when you all became a Christian or not. I didn't become a Christian until I was 20 years old. So I know what life was like before I had Jesus in my life. And I remember the darkness, and I remember how, how easy I fell into temptation. I remember the, the anger in my heart before Jesus got into it. And so you go back and think about what life was like before Jesus, he says. He says, then remember that you were stateless. Not that you were an American citizen, but remember at one point you didn't have a guarantee of going to heaven. And then he says, remember that you were friendless to the covenants, meaning that God's promises in the whole Bible, the, pro the promises we all want to know and believe in, they didn't apply to you because you didn't believe they were true for you. And then he says, remember that you were without hope, without God. This is a pretty, like, depressing list, honestly. When I read it, I'm like, man, that's deep and dark and, and exposing in so many ways. It's not written to us to embarrass us or bring up shame. It's actually written to remind us of how loved you and I are. So when I, we had our little kids, right, our, my kids are 10 and 11 now, um, when they were real little, we would send them to the rooms on a, um, for a timeout, right? Like, you know, like, hey, you've been bad, go to, give a timeout. And after the timeout, I would go to the room and my wife and I would give them a big hug. And we wanted them to know they were loved even when they did bad things. We wanted them to get into their heart, like, I am loved, mommy and daddy love me when I do bad things. And we wanted to mirror God's love for us. And when Paul says to remember what life was like before Jesus, it's like he's saying, hey, this week, before you go into the craziness of your family and your life, take a God time out and remember and remember that Jesus loves you when you're bad. He loves you when your heart is at its worst. I know we don't want to talk about and think about that at church. We want to be encouraged. But, you know, we, we all have some, pretty stu some stuff in the heart. Jesus loves us in that. He loves you in that. It's like he puts his arms around you and says, I love you. Before you go in this week, just know that. Because it's really tough to hold on to conflict, isn't it? When you know how loved you are by Jesus and what he did for you. So that's the first practical thing we are to do to have a conflict-free Christmas is to remember what Jesus did for us. Remember what Jesus did for you first. This week, remember. Take time to remember that the crib is here, but Jesus goes to the cross. Remember what he did for you. When I, was, uh, uh, when I was growing up, my parents, my, my mom was really into the piano, and she had this beautiful grand piano, and when we would go visit uh, my parents uh, for the holidays, my kids would go on it, and they would just start pounding on it, you know, and, and you can, you know, hear the noise of them just hitting the keys, 
And then my mom, because I, I don't know if she was just being nice or just stressed out, she would go, and she's a good piano player, and sit down, and she'd begin to play a melody. And that melody would begin to harmonize with what they're pounding on the keys. In fact, they would start to look at what keys she was hitting, and they would try to mirror her as well. And soon there would be this beautiful melody in the house that came out of this really chaotic thing. When you remember what Jesus did for you, you sync up to Jesus' peace. And when you sync up to his peace, that peace can actually change the whole house you're part of. Like the room you're in, the people you're around. You can actually sync up and give that peace out to other people. So, number one, remember what Christ has done for you. But then secondly, we are to also remember what Christ did for them as well. Look down at verse 17 and 18. He said this, He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The astonishing word here is both. You know, it's so easy for us to say he died for me and give ourselves grace, but it's a lot harder to give them grace, isn't it? The person you have conflict with. But Paul says, remember, he, he died for both. Jesus died for the person that you have conflict with. He died for that in-law, that cousin, that brother, that mom, that dad, that spouse, that ex-spouse, the father of your kids, the, father, the, the, the mother of your children. He died for them as well. And so the second step we're going to do to have a conflict-free Christmas is to remember what Jesus did for them, that Jesus died for them as well. So it's a two-part arsenal to have a conflict-free Christmas. Number one, remember what Jesus did for you. And number two, remember what Jesus did for them. Jesus um, told us in Matthew 5 to pray for people that we had conflict with. And I think that's where it begins. In fact, I encourage you this week to start praying for the people you're about to see, for your family, and for those of you that might have conflict with. He said this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is where the heart change begins to happen. Will it make your heart, your, your family look like a, a Norman Rockwell painting? Uh, probably not, maybe not, I don't know. I have no guarantee on that. There's no promises to that. But you have to forgive, even if they don't forgive you. Even if they don't own up to the conflict, you must forgive and you must pray for them because it's about the peace in your heart. Um, you know the, the, the movie Scrooge, right? Ebenezer Scrooge. The, the, it's the book, The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. In, that, in that, 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 that book, the ghost of Christmas past comes to Scrooge and he urges Scrooge to forgive his parents from the past. His parents hurt him when he was a child. And Scrooge says, why should I forgive them when they hurt me? And the ghost of Christmas past looks at Scrooge and says, because forgiveness is not a gift you just give to other people. Forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. You see, for Christ's peace to rule in you, right, you have to forgive people. And before you expect it to rule in other people. Once again, the big idea, Christ's peace must rule in your heart first before you can expect it to rule in others. Um, some of you know about my friend Rick at my gym. I've told stories about him before. Uh, I call him Ripped Rick. You remember that guy? Some of you guys are like, yeah, okay. So we've grown as a church the last year since I mentioned him. But there's this guy at my gym, and he is the most ripped dude, okay? So I call him Ripped Rick, okay? He's 70 years old, and he is the most ripped bro in the whole thing. And he's, he's always walking around with this tank top, and he's awesome. But he's got a great story. He's a believer in Jesus. He was mentored by Pastor Chuck Smith. If you know who Chuck Smith is, he was a pastor for the Calvary Chapel movement. And if you saw Jesus' Revolution, that's Chuck Smith, the pastor in that movie. 
Well, uh, Ripped Rick was mentored by Chuck, and he was uh, Chuck's RV driver in the summer times. Because after the Jesus Revolution, uh, Chuck would get into his RV and would go and see pastors who had planted churches after the Jesus Revolution and pray with them and do Bible study with them. And Rick was his RV driver. So Chuck would do the Bible study and prayer, and Rick would make the breakfast and drive the RV. And now he's in his 70s. He goes to Harvest in Irvine. And he comes up to me uh, at the gym, and he always calls me pastor. He's like, pastor. That's how he always says, pastor. And I'm like, hey, what's up, Rick? He goes, pastor, there are two people in our gym who clean it, Claudia and Antonia, uh, Antonio. And I'm walking around to every person in the gym asking if they would fill out a thank you card and thank those cleaners for all they do for our gym. And then would we take an offering for them? I mean, Half, I don't know who's a Christian. I'm like, an, you're asking for the offering at the gym. It's awesome. And he's got this big envelope full of cash. And Ripped Rick is walking up to all the dudes at the gym who are doing like squats. And he's like, hey, sign it, give money. And everyone's like, yeah, Rick, I'm going to do that. Like, who can say no to that guy, right? But literally, there's a crowd of people coming over to Rick to like help him out and give to these two people in our gym. And you can see them. They have the vacuum on. They vacuum around. They're spraying things down, making sure everyone's nice and clean. When it was all over, um, when af after the, he walked around, I walked up to Rick and I said, Rick, thank you. I, I needed that for me. Like, I, I needed that moment for me. I was at the gym and I was like, yeah, this is what it's all about. And he said to me, Pastor, we have to show them what Jesus did for us. He didn't mean Claudia and Antonia. <laughs> he meant all the middle class people trying to get bigger biceps. We have to show them what Jesus did for us. And so he's walking around showing people what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is Christmas week, the week of peace and harmony in the world. The Prince of Peace has come. You have to show people what Jesus has done for you. Remember what he's done for you. Remember what he's done for them. But this week, you could show them you could give them a card. You could give them a gift, an unexpected gift, maybe an unexpected hug. Whoever it is you're going to see where there's conflict, what are you going to do to show them that the Prince of Peace has come this week and that the crib and the cross actually make a difference in your life? That's the beauty that we're called to. Here's success. I was like thinking about what it would be like to hear those words from me. What's the other side of me like this week? I want to give you what success is. In two weeks from now, when I see you on the 31st at 10 o'clock, not 11 or 9, by the way, here's what success is. Aaron, I went to my in-laws. I loved the person I was in conflict with. They were rude. They were, they were proud. They didn't want to look me in the eyes. But I loved them anyway. That is success as a Christian. That is fruit. That is being Jesus and showing them the crib and the cross matter to your life. Jesus said, peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you in John 14, 27. And he meant the Holy Spirit. He's given us his peace. So he's given you his peace. Can you give it out to somebody else this week? How can you? What does that look like?